As I mentioned in the earlier service, uh, if you don't know David Moore, you should. It was David on the horn, accompanied by, of course, Erica Roth. Uh, David and his wife, Anne, are a very important part of our church family and just great people to get to know. Uh, he's very talented, and he does work for Wycliffe Bible Translators on the software side of things. And uh, I'm not sure exactly what all that involves, but I said earlier that it's something that uh, it requires you to be very smart. And uh, I'm pretty confident that's what it is, uh, but I'm grateful for the many talented people that we have in our church and uh, thankful that we can stand amazed in the presence of Jesus the Nazarene. How marvelous and how wonderful is our Savior's love for us. I want to invite you to turn your Bibles to Luke chapter 20. Our text today is verse 27 through verse 40. Uh, We'll read the passage in just a moment in a message entitled, Implications of the Resurrection. Gary Habermas is a professor at Liberty University, and I believe he is the foremost modern scholar on the resurrection of Jesus Christ. He has written extensively uh, many books on the resurrection, uh, articles and other things that are helpful in our understanding of it. And he wrote a piece entitled, Jesus' Resurrection, When Truth Confronts Our Worst Suffering. He said that having strong reasons for our beliefs is even better than just having good theology. And even good theology is indispensable. He said being able to apply Both of these, good theology as well as strong reasons, to the worst suffering that we experience in life may be the toughest task of all. Dr. Habermas told a personal story from the life of his family and of his wife in particular. He said, my wife and I visited the hospital in 1995 for what were described as fairly routine tests. Within minutes, however, my world changed forever. Debbie might have terminal stomach cancer with no remedy. I measured my life by the severity of the shocking news that arrived repeatedly in the days ahead. Debbie was only 43 years old, and we had four children at home. Four months later, she died. I said this was the worst pain that I could experience. During the ordeal, Dr. Habermas said a graduate student asked him, where would you be now if Jesus hadn't been raised from the dead? He said at that time I'd been studying the resurrection for decades. But then he said this, my investigation was devoted chiefly to the historical theoretical aspects. God had to teach me how to apply resurrection truth to my daily life. The fact of Jesus' resurrection trumps even our greatest suffering. As Paul states, Christians mourn for their loved ones too, but we mourn with a resurrection hope. And then he closed with this, because death has lost its biggest sting. Luke chapter 20, beginning in verse 27. Some of the Sadducees who say there is no resurrection came up and questioned him. They questioned Jesus. Teacher, Moses wrote for us that if a man's brother has a wife and dies childless, his brother should take his wife, the wife, and produce offspring for his brother. Now, there were seven brothers. The first took a wife and died without children. 
Also the second and the third took her. In the same way, all seven died and left no children. Finally, the woman died too. In the resurrection, therefore, whose wife will the woman be? For all seven had married her. Jesus told them, the children of this age marry and are given in marriage. But those who are counted worthy to take part in that age and in the resurrection from the dead neither marry nor are given in marriage. For they can no longer die because they are like angels and are children of God, since they are children of the resurrection. Moses even indicated in the passage about the burning bush that the dead are raised, where he calls the Lord the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. He is not the God of the dead, but of the living, because all are living to him. Some of the scribes answered, Teacher, you have spoken well. And they no longer dared to ask him anything. By this point in the narrative of Luke, Jesus has arrived into Jerusalem And he's demonstrating himself by his actions and by his teachings that he is, in fact, the long-awaited Messiah. We focused on the authority of Jesus in the first 26 verses of this chapter. The authority of Jesus is anchored in who he is. It's communicated in what he has said. And then it calls for a decision about who he is, what he has said, and what he has done. God the Father, after all, has given all authority to Jesus so that he might grant eternal life and by virtue of this also exact judgment. You might remember that the Sadducees and the Pharisees were the ruling class of the Jews in Israel. As religious groups, they had prominence. Both groups honored Moses and the law, and they both had political influence. So the Sanhedrin, which was made up of the 70 members that comprised it, essentially was the supreme court of Israel. And they had both Sadducees and Pharisees on the Sanhedrin. The Sadducees were known to be conservative, uh, basically aristocratic. They were a high priestly party. They were worldly minded. And as a result of that, they were quite willing to cooperate with the Romans because they wanted to hold on to that power and that aristocracy that they were a part of. They wanted to keep that privilege that they had come to enjoy. But they also insisted on what they saw as a literal interpretation of the scripture. And some of their beliefs were in opposition to the beliefs of the Pharisees. Significant to our passage is that they rejected a belief in the resurrection from the dead. Notice in verse 27, it says that the Sadducees who say there is no resurrection, came up and questioned him. The Sadducees thought that the soul just perished at death and and that was it. They rejected any concept of an unseen spiritual world. They posed a hypothetical question to Jesus that I would say is actually an absurd question. The question was on the resurrection. It was not a sincere attempt to understand but rather an attempt to try and make Jesus look foolish. The hypothetical situation was one in which a woman married each of seven brothers after the previous brother died in succession. Under Hebrew, uh, leveret marriage, which is described in Deuteronomy 25, an unmarried man would marry his dead brother's widow who had no children, 
in order to have children in his name and carry on the family line. They asked Jesus under this scenario, in the resurrection, whose wife will she be? Jesus says something interesting. There will be no marriage in the resurrection. God's people will be like the angels as it relates to marriage and in the age to come. It's very important to note here that Jesus is not saying that people will become angels. It's not what he's saying. In fact, this is one of the most common misperceptions that you'll hear people say. Sometimes when a loved one has died, you'll hear the phrase, well, they got their wings or now they're an angel in heaven overlooking us. And listen, it's, it's with good spirit and in good intent, but it's just wrong. It's not biblical. People are people and angels are angels. And they will remain what God has created them to be. The point is, we will be spiritual beings with no need for procreation. And therefore, the marriage relationship in that sense is not going to be necessary according to what Jesus is teaching here. Now, family relationships are still going to be known in the life to come. We see that from a negative perspective in the passage in Luke chapter 16 about the rich man and Lazarus. Uh, The rich man certainly knew who his family members were, and he was aware of those family relationships. But there's a higher point that is being made here that it will take hold of. It'll give us an understanding of what Jesus is teaching. The glory and the splendor of heaven will be a relationship with God that surpasses anything else. That's going to be the magnificence of heaven. That the satisfaction of heaven will far exceed anything that we can know on this earth. And that means that as the family of God, we will be one in Christ. And because we are one in Christ, we will relate at a higher level than we can fully understand on this side of eternity. Verse 36 says, For they can no longer die because they are like angels and are children of God, since they are children of the resurrection. Jesus indicates the certainty of the resurrection. Jesus demonstrates the certainty and the reality of the resurrection using only the Torah, using only the first five books of Moses. And there's a reason he did that. Because these were the only books that the Sadducees accepted as authoritative. And Jesus appeals directly to Moses because the Sadducees wrongly taught that Moses' teaching did not reveal a resurrection. He referred to when the Lord told Moses that he's the God of the patriarchs in Exodus chapter 3. Here in verse 37, it says Moses even indicated in the passage about the burning bush that the dead are raised, where he calls the Lord the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. What Jesus does is he goes directly to their erroneous thinking and proves from the scripture itself that they would have held to, that they were wrong, and that there was something more that they needed to understand. The reference to the Lord as the God of the patriarchs indicated that the patriarchs were still alive because God is the God of the living. Even though these words had been spoken hundreds of years after the last patriarch's deaths, he was pointing to the future resurrection. One Bible commentator said this emphatically tells us that those who departed from this life in the Lord will live. How will they live? They will live personally and individually in the life to come. 
we'll retain the essence of who we are, even what we've been named until we're given that name by the Lord. They're mentioned by their names. They're free from all sorrow. They're not lost. We know where they are, and they also know. The teachers of the law and the Sadducees were at odds with each other because their beliefs did not coincide. And in that moment, after Jesus teaches them this, everyone's afraid to ask Jesus any more questions. Now, I love that little phrase there because here's the Son of God, the Messiah. He's in their midst, and they're trying to trip him up with a question here. And somebody's bold enough to ask these absurd questions, and then Jesus just lays the theological smackdown on them. And he says, this is how it is. And they start looking around at each other. Hey, I'm not asking him anything else. You going to ask him anything? No, I'm not asking him anything. And they were afraid to ask him any more questions. Now, the subject in this section of Luke focuses on the resurrection in general. The resurrection points to the fullness of the gospel of Christ. When we talk about the gospel, we're talking about good news. And in 1 Corinthians 15, Paul clearly gives us the gospel. Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures. He was buried and he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures. So the good news is, the gospel is, that God sent his only son to this earth. He lived a perfect life, tempted at every point as we are, yet was without sin. He died on the cross in our place for our sins. He was buried, and on the third day, he was raised from the dead. And all who will repent of their sins and believe in him will have eternal life and will spend eternity with God in heaven. Now, what I want to do in the balance of the time that I have with you today is approach this from a doctrinal perspective with personal application. It's going to be a little bit different from uh, my uh, normal approach in the sense that I'm going to cover a lot of ground and a lot of different Bible verses. And as I do that, I want to share with you five implications of the resurrection that can help us better understand what Jesus has done on our behalf, how we can relate to God, and what it means for the future. And we're going to move through these in uh, rapid-fire fashion, so hang on, make notes of the verses and the implications, and hopefully it'll be something that'll be helpful for you as you apply it to your life. Implication number one, in the resurrection of Jesus, prophecy was fulfilled. Prophecy was fulfilled. David, for example, wrote 1,000 years before the birth of Jesus in uh, Psalm 16 and verse 10, For you will not abandon me to Sheol, you will not allow your faithful one to see decay. That verse was not held in isolation, but it was actually connected to the New Testament church. On the day of Pentecost, when the church was born, Peter preached the first gospel sermon, and he boldly stated that Jesus had been raised from the dead in Acts chapter 2 and verse 24. Then he explained that God performed this miraculous deed in fulfillment of David's prophecy in Psalm 16. And in doing so, he quoted the words of David. Later, the Apostle Paul in Acts chapter 13 did the exact same thing when he preached to the Jews of Antioch in Pisidia. He also declared that God had raised Jesus from the dead, specifically in fulfillment of Psalm 16 in verse 10. Uh, The resurrection of Jesus is inferred in Psalm 22. The first 18 verses of that psalm 
uh, described the suffering of the Messiah, uh, even mentioning the nature of his death. It says in verse 16 of Psalm 22, they pierced my hands and my feet. His ultimate resurrection comes into focus in verse 21 and 22, where the scripture says, save me from the lion's mouth, from the horns of wild oxen. You answered me. I will proclaim your name to my brothers and sisters, and I will praise you in the assembly. In the ministry of Jesus himself, uh, he foretold of what was to come. So here was the one about whom the prophecy would be fulfilled. He's telling them about what's going to come in the future, and then he actually fulfills it in himself. Matthew 16 and verse 21 would be an example of that, where the scripture says, from that time, Jesus Christ began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and be raised up on the third day. Now think about this. Had Jesus failed to be resurrected, his followers would have concluded that he was a false teacher and a false prophet. He said these things were going to happen. He said he was the fulfillment of that prophecy. Had he not actually carried through with it, they would not have wanted anything to do with him. If you do a survey of scripture about prophecies related to Jesus and his life and his death and his burial and his resurrection, you will find over 300 specific prophecies related to him. And the first implication is that in the resurrection of Jesus, prophecy was fulfilled. Implication number two, in the resurrection of Jesus, his identity was confirmed. In John chapter two, the Jews asked Jesus for a sign to prove that he was in fact the Messiah. Jesus responded by saying in verse 19, destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up. And they thought Jesus was talking about Herod's temple. But John noted he was speaking of the temple of his body. And then there's very, a very interesting verse in John 2 and verse 22. It says, when therefore he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this. And they believed the scripture and the word which Jesus had spoken. So I think this was sort of like a, an aha moment for them. They heard him teaching it in real time. They're hoping by faith with all hope that it's in fact true. And then when he was crucified and raised from the dead and they saw him right in front of them and it was authenticated what had been promised and prophesied, they remembered what he had said and they said, that's what he was talking about. And we believe it because what he said was true. The Bible describes the teachings and the miracles that support who Jesus was as the Messiah. But I would say to you that the ultimate sign and proof that God used to confirm his son was his resurrection from the dead on the third day. Jesus gave this as the ultimate sign to point to his identity. In Matthew chapter 12 and verse 38 and following, it says that some of the scribes and the Pharisees said to him, teacher, we want to see a sign from you. But he answered and said to them, an evil and adulterous generation craves for a sign, and yet no sign will be given to it but the sign of Jonah the prophet. For just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. He said, listen, you want a sign? Oh, you're going to get a sign. And that sign is going to be similar to what happened to Jonah, 
When Jonah was in the belly of the fish for those days, when I'm raised from the dead, that's going to be the ultimate sign for you because it'll be the authentication of what God promised was going to take place. And then Paul wrote in Romans chapter 1 and verse 4, he was declared the son of God with power by the resurrection from the dead. So who is Jesus Christ? He's the son of God. He's the Messiah. What proof do we have that he's the son of God and the Messiah? Well, from the perspective of the defense of the faith, Jesus was crucified by the Romans as numerous sources, both biblical and extra biblical, confirm. The tomb was found to be empty on the Sunday following his crucifixion. Jesus appeared alive to both believers and non-believers. His followers, the disciples, believed in the resurrection, and that's what gave rise to the Christian faith. Have you ever thought about the fact that just the thought that these people were willing to live for Jesus but also die for Jesus in very dramatic ways was confirmation that they believed what they had seen. If they didn't believe that Jesus was raised from the dead, they would not have put themselves in the circumstances that they put themselves in. And if we fast forward this to today in real time and we look at believers around the world who are persecuted for their faith. Today, many who are living in some of the darkest places on the planet, they, they meet in small groups in, in fear of what might happen to them in their lives, and yet they still hold on to the truth that they believe and they share it with others so that they too might believe, and many of them are persecuted and killed for it. Why would they do that unless they believed it to be true? His resurrection from the dead was undoubtedly the event that God used to establish and proclaim his identity. Implication number three, in the resurrection of Jesus, forgiveness for sinners was secured. In that great resurrection passage in 1 Corinthians 15, Paul makes it clear that the Christian faith rises and falls on the bodily resurrection of Jesus from the dead. In fact, he says in verse 19, if there is no resurrection of Christ from the dead, then Christians are of all people the most to be pitied. You know what he's saying? Listen, if that stuff y'all say is not true, that's pitiful. You ought to be sympathized with because if that's not true, then it all falls apart. But yet it is. And one of the reasons that he mentions we're to be pitied is that if Christ has not been raised, our faith is worthless and we're still in our sins. You understand that the greatest need that every single human being has is to be in right standing with their creator. That's the greatest need we have, to be in right standing with God. We can't be on our own because we're sinners and God is the judge and we're accountable to him. So how can we be forgiven? How can we be justified? We are justified and declared righteous through Jesus Christ and his shed blood. Now, don't miss this connection. Forgiveness of your sin and mine is the root of all of the other blessings that come from God. So all the promises that we talk about, all the blessings that we proclaim, all the things that we point to and we say, we're going we're gonna to hang on to that stuff. 
it's all at the root of the forgiveness that we have with God. Because to receive the blessing and the promises and the assurances only comes if we're right with him. And our justification in that regard is directly connected to the resurrection. Romans 4 and verse 24 and 25 says it will be counted to us who believe in him who raised Jesus from the dead, who was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. So our trespasses or our sins were the reason for his death. The death of Jesus was sufficient. The blood of Jesus is what satisfied the wrath of God and it makes it possible for us to be forgiven of our sin. And God declared his son's righteousness by what? By raising Jesus from the dead. I like the way Jonathan Edwards put it from so many years ago. He said, for if Christ were not risen, it would be evidence that God was not yet satisfied for our sins. Now the resurrection is God declaring his satisfaction. He thereby declared that it was enough. Christ was thereby released from his work. Christ, as he was mediator, is thereby justified. When the Lord Jesus was raised up out of the tomb, our justification was raised up with him. And God said, here it is on display. The cross was enough. The blood is the only payment for your sin. God's declaration of sinners as righteous through the imputed righteousness of Jesus Christ is the only way that we can be forgiven. And because of the resurrection, forgiveness for sinners was secured. Implication number four, in the resurrection of Jesus, death, hell, and the grave were defeated. Now, death is the enemy's most powerful weapon against us. As we think about this current moment that we find ourselves in and this pandemic that continues on after all of these months and in the last year and a half or so, what is the greatest fear that is put in front of people? It's death. What could ultimately happen to us if things don't go our way in these moments? And when Jesus conquered death, what he did was he removed the sting of death and it no longer has power over us. We are more than conquerors. Now, obviously, death is a formidable foe. If you look at the statistics worldwide, there are 56.6 million deaths every single year. 56.6 million. That's overwhelming to even think about it. That that many people, their lives on this earth are over and they step out into the next. That amounts to 4.7 million people every single month. 155,000 people on average per day. In this hour that we will be here together, on average, there will be 6,500 people on the face of the planet whose lives will expire. It's overwhelming when you start thinking about it. It's a formidable foe. As the great Greek playwright Sophocles said, of all the great wonders, none is greater than man. Only for death can he find no cure. It's really interesting how people go to great lengths to try to defeat death. Uh, The author, Adam Gallner, uh, detailed some of the areas uh, that 
some wealthy people in the world put their monies in order to try to find a solution to this and get a solution to the problem of death. And one particular individual that he wrote about uh, is Larry Ellison. Uh, You may or may not know the name, but he is reportedly the seventh richest person in the world. He's the CEO of the of the Oracle uh, Corporation, and he contributes apparently forty million dollars of his own money every single year for the purpose of the cause of trying to stay alive. And that's a lot of money. I don't care if you are the seventh richest person in the world. Just throwing down forty million dollars is a lot of money. And it's said that he views death as just another kind of corporate opponent that he can outfox. He set up a foundation dedicated to, listen to this, ending mortality, or at least understanding lifespan development processes and age-related diseases and disabilities. And here's one thing that Ellison said. He said, death makes me very angry. It doesn't make any sense to me. Death's never made any sense to me. How can there a person be there and then just, just vanish and not be there? And then Gallner, the writer, concluded, death may not make any sense but perhaps some think that it can be defeated. We certainly believe it can be because it already has been. And we would, to state it more plainly, say, death is not the end of the story for those who know Jesus. It's not the end of it. 2 Corinthians 5 and verse 1 says, For we know that if our earthly tent that we live in is destroyed, that we have a building from God, an eternal dwelling in the heavens, that is not made with hands. And we know that we have a Savior who declared himself to be the living one. In Revelation 1 and verse 18, he says, I was dead, but look, I am alive forever and ever, and I hold the keys of death and Hades. So after his resurrection, when John received that message, uh, Jesus, having been raised from the dead, said, listen, I was dead, but I'm not dead anymore. I am alive now and forever. And he said, not only am I alive now and forever, but I hold the keys to death and Hades. And one commentator said, this is the most significant difference between Christianity and all other religions. No other religious leader ever predicted his own death and resurrection, based his claims about himself and his teaching on that prediction, and then actually was able to keep the prediction. That's what Christ has done. No one else has ever risen from the dead, never to die again. Think about the examples in the New Testament of even the people that Jesus raised from the dead. You understand they died again. They were miracles in the moment to demonstrate the power of Jesus and to bless the people who were raised, but they weren't permanent. Peter said it was impossible for death to keep its hold on Christ because he's risen We are fellow conquerors in him. The Bible speaks of us passing from death to life when our faith is in Christ. And according to 2 Timothy 1 and verse 10, Christ has destroyed death and has brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. And as Paul wrote further into that 2 Corinthians 5 passage that I referenced, we groan now because we live in a fallen world. But we are headed toward an eternal home where we will be clothed with our heavenly dwelling so that what is mortal may be swallowed up by life. Because Jesus has defeated death, hell, and the grave, our fears can be conquered. 
And then finally, implication number five, in the resurrection of Jesus, our hope is secured. Biblical hope is a little bit different from just a normal, ordinary dictionary definition that you might find of hope in the sense that the main biblical words for hope indicate confidence and security. Biblical hope is a confident expectation or assurance based on the character and the promises of God. There's a passage in 1 Peter chapter 1 and verse 3 and 4 that I think speaks so much to this hope that we have. Here's what Peter writes. He said, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Because of this great mercy, he has given us new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead and into an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, and it is kept in heaven for you. We have a living hope because we have eternal life in a Savior who has conquered death. And through the new birth, we have that living hope. And Peter wrote to Christians, I would remind you, who were suffering. I mean, these people were under intense persecution. These words were meant to encourage them in their troubles. And even though the pressure was on them and the persecution was great and the difficulties were significant, he's writing to them to say, listen, your future is secure because of the resurrection of Jesus. And because your future is secure, you can have the victory in the here and now. And as I was thinking about these verses this week, I thought about, I wonder how, wonder how Peter would write this to us today specifically in the era that we find ourselves in in the 21st century. Here's what I think he might say. When you look around you in the world and you see followers of Jesus being persecuted and losing their lives and life itself, when you look around yourself in the world and you see the coronavirus and hitting close to home in many circumstances, And you look across the world and you see the chaos and the tragedy in Afghanistan and the service men and women who have lost their lives. And you see the chaos that has followed all of that. When you look on the news and the weather and you see a a hurricane stirring in the Gulf that's a Category 4, maybe Category 5, going into the coast. And you look around you and you see the the, uh, survey of the people who are divided more than they've ever been before over many different issues you can remember this. You have been given a new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. And regardless of what you see in the circumstances, he is your hope now, and you have an inheritance that is awaiting you in heaven that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading. And even in the face of all of these uncertainties and all these things that could bring us fear and all these things that can bring us pain, hold on and keep looking to God. Because Jesus has been raised from the dead. I think you'd say something like that. And I think, in fact, that's what God's Word is saying to us. Because after all, faith is being sure of what we hope for. And it's being certain of what we do not See. Now I close with this. Back to our scripture passage in Luke chapter 20. God is not the God of the dead, but the God of the living, because all are living to Him. 
You remember when Jesus was called to the grave of Lazarus? He's four days late, but he's still on time. You remember what he said to Martha? John chapter 11, verse 25. I am the resurrection and the life. The one who believes in me, even if he dies, will live. Everyone who lives and believes in me will never die. And then Jesus asked this question. Do you believe this? Do you believe it? You could affirm everything I've said today as true and still be lost. You could believe in your head that Jesus Christ was crucified and raised from the dead but not have repented of your sins and believed in him by faith. If you're just believing it in theory, it's not going to do you much good. It's not going to do you any good at all. But if you believe in him by faith, then you have a living hope. And I'll take this one step further. You could believe all of this and by faith have trusted in the Lord Jesus Christ, but yet live your life in such a way that you are consumed by the fears and the uncertainties of the world. And I'm telling you, it doesn't have to be that way. We don't have to live in fear because we follow the one who has overcome. And because he's overcome, We have all of the blessings that come from God. Let's bow our heads together for a moment. We're going to sing a closing chorus here in just a moment. But I want to ask you, do you believe this? Do you truly believe this? Are the implications of the resurrection real in your life? If they're not, they can be. You say, Pastor, I know I'm not a Christian. I know I've never repented of my sins and believed in Jesus Christ. Your life could change forever today in an instant if you only trust in him. Christian, what are you burdened by right now? There's as many burdens as there are people in this room and listening to this message otherwise. They're real burdens. Jesus knows they're heavy. God cares. He'll meet you at your point of need and he'll help you. Would you, in light of that resurrection hope that you have in him, just say, Lord, in my flesh, I admit that I am sometimes afraid. I'm stressed by this moment, this circumstance that I'm dealing with. But I believe that you want me to have hope and I believe you want me to have peace. So I rest in that hope and that peace that I have in Jesus. Father, we're so grateful for your word. Thank you for the teaching of Jesus that is direct and to the point, applied to our lives by the Holy Spirit. 
We thank you that we have a a living hope because of what Christ has done. And I pray that we would live as a people who have not only received this great grace for ourselves, but as people who are burdened by those uh, people who depart this life who don't know you. And you've given us a sacred responsibility, Father, as your church to make Jesus known. Find us faithful in doing that as we freely share the gospel that people might believe and be saved and spend eternity with you. We give this time of close and response over to you, Lord. We pray that you would work in it, and we ask that you would get the glory and the honor for any good that comes from it. In Jesus' name, amen.